It is 901. I'm John Matthews. You are listening to 94.1 KSLG FM. Hydesville, Eureka Arcata, streaming and podcasting at KSLG.com. There have been a number of stories recently about local law enforcement, of course, cracking down on marijuana grows, uh, in particular, large marijuana grows and the time standard. They're saying recently in an article that federal and local law enforcement officials are citing increased environmental degradation as a primary reason for an imminent crackdown on large-scale marijuana grow operations. And someone who's involved with recent research, Morad Gabriel, he is a UC Davis researcher. He published a recent paper on the damage wrought by rodenticides, sometimes used by growers on the endangered Pacific fisher, and this has caused uh, what Hank Sims over the Las Coast Outpost is calling a huge stir in policy circles and the media, and I would agree with that because I saw several articles about this. And the sheriff is beside me right now, Mike Downey, and the UC Davis researcher, Maura Gabriel. So good morning to you both. Thanks for coming in. Morning. Thank you. Good morning. Thank you. So... Is this true that things have have changed in the world of how you're handling marijuana grow operations? Are you, are you at this point are you ramping up your your activity, yeah, sheriff? Well, yeah, I, I ramping up is a uh, is a word that uh, uh, can be looked at in many different ways as to just how how aggressive or non aggressive we are. Uh, the biggest thing is is uh, marijuana cultivation in Humboldt County has changed immensely from where it was twenty twenty five years ago when I was actually out there eradicating marijuana to where it is today. Uh, much more sophisticated uh, on a larger scale. Many more plants we're finding out uh, out on both public and private lands, timber property, uh, that type of thing. So. Uh, w- what we're seeing in the field has has greatly uh, increased, and a lot of that is due to um, the drop in the price of marijuana uh, at the production end. You know, uh, it, 20 years ago you were seeing marijuana going for oh five to six thousand a pound. Now you're seeing it down around fifteen hundred to maybe twenty five hundred a pound. So what happens? The grower grows more to make up that deficit. So we're seeing an increased amount of growing out there, and the sophistication is another issue. So what what happened a year ago was when the uh, the 215, the Compassionate Use Act uh, controversy became a stir with Mendocino County and how they were trying to regulate it. Uh, I went to the feds then, met with the U.S. Attorney and some other people in San Francisco. They made it very clear to me that you know, on on the federal federal stances, any cultivation is illegal. So my response to them was, oh, here we're trying to regulate something that is legal in California, medical marijuana, regulate it to the point that 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 it can be controlled, so that no one's abusing it. But yet, you know, the the federal government's saying, no, you can't do that. So I have to comply with federal law. But uh, so what I've done is I've gone to the fed, federal government and said, okay, here's our problem. Here's our big industrial commercial grows that are out of control in Humboldt County so I need help with those that's 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 the biggest problem we have here and with the uh, information that Murad has come up with in this last year or so it really uh, bolsters that argument that it has become out of control in Humboldt County now it's it, now it's endangering the environment wildlife our streams uh, our forests and that type of thing yeah this is not something that you've noticed just recently this must have been an evolving situation for years now that this predicament has has reached the stage that it has correct or is there something unique to the last couple of years that well, I think I think you said it it's, it's evolved and and you know uh, Obviously, I don't have a chart here to show you, but when I went to the federal, went to meet with the U.S. Attorney, I prepared a PowerPoint and I showed the amount of federal dollars or dollars spent for eradication in 1986 versus the amount of dollars spent today 
and as as the dollars spent for eradication went down the amount of of, uh, of uh, cultivation has gone up so we're we're at a point where we can't necessarily stem the flow anymore and uh because we don't have the dollars to do it we don't have the manpower the resources so humble counties become an area well, with many northern california counties and throughout the state of california areas where people can grow more marijuana and just so i understand the the change that's taken place because i've lived here now for 10 years or so but it appears to me that periodically the federal government is involved in an operation when they go on to land to take care of a large grow or is that completely incorrect on my part is this brand new that the federal no. government is here no, not, it's not brand new, but I think uh, the level of cooperation is, is new. And, and, and I, I have to quantify that because uh, people have asked me that question. Well, do we have a large amount of federal agents in Humboldt County uh, carrying out eradication efforts? No, not any more than what we used to have, but I have more resources at hand. Uh, I actually have one of my deputies working with the task force out of Santa Rosa, uh, assisting other counties. with it. What that brings is resources here that we might need when we, we stumble on something that's beyond our capacity to deal with. It also brings logistical uh, uh, help to us and more funding to help us keep our eradication efforts here. So you're not going to see an upswing in, in the federal intervention as far as manpower that we've had all along. I, I don't see there's a big increase in that, but it, it, there's other ways that that cooperation or that partnership is working to our benefit. And we are taking phone calls. So if you have a question for the sheriff or for Murad, you can call right now 786-5784 786-5784 And Murad, you have conducted this study on the fisher and just the impact that these large-scale growers are having on the environment. How did that happen? Is this something that you have been passionate about for years now? Or what's what is the evolution of this? Uh, well, initially, we've been working on uh, the health, basically the health status on this population of fishers, as well as the population of fishers throughout California. <clears throat> so in uh, 2004, U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service uh, looks at various factors to deem if if they're warranted for protection under the Endangered Species Act, and one of these factors is disease. And unfortunately, there was very limited information on whether or not um, diseases, infectious or non-infectious disease agents, can uh, are um, either deleterious to the population of fishers. So we've just been looking at this aspect since 2004. Um, we archive, so therefore we have fishers that are monitored. When they die, we take them in. We do full necropsies with the board-certified pathologist and a toxicologist. And over the course of several years, we started noticing um, exposure rates to these toxicants, specifically second-generation anticoagulant rodenticides, um, at a high level. Uh, we had several poisonings, and we, you know, we started to look into this a little bit deeper uh, with, the, with the notion that most likely these exposures, what has been shown in the literature, is affiliated with urban, peri-urban, uh, so just that interface between urban and, a, and maybe a wildland settings or agricultural settings. However, we had these fishers that were monitored throughout their life that lived in national parks, wilderness settings, national forests, and tribal lands that had no affiliation in their home ranges with these particular factors. So then the next logical step is working with law enforcement where they fed us some information saying, this is where your fishers lived. These are, your, these are plants that we eradicated that had 70, 80, 90 pounds of rodenticide within that grow site. And we started to look at that as a serious factor. So it, 
it evolved. Uh, it wasn't something right off the bat because this usually when we run into a grow site in the field as an ecologist or a biologist, we do a 180 turnaround for our safety. We don't go into the grower's den at all to investigate what kind of toxicants are out there. And what is that like, by the way, since you are out there in the field and you are happening to encounter these large-scale grows? Have you ever had any sort of scrapes with some heavy-eating people with guns? And- oh, every, every, I would say every biologist that works um, here in the North Coast um, and is constantly in the field, even in the Sierras, uh, you're going to run into, it's unfortunate circumstance. We run into grow sites, I would say, multiple times throughout your field season. Um, and when we run into grow sites, they're running into an individual that may be armed, uh, seeing an individual that may be armed while you're monitoring an animal, or finding um, campsites that are either abandoned or campsites that they're out tending their grows, and you just happen to stumble across a campsite. It's it's actually a very scary situation, and I can give you a little bit of context to this, uh, John, is that this has been such a situation that it has affected our field of collecting data that throughout California, just talking to other ecologists that have large-scale projects, Projects, um, we lose about 20 to 30 percent of our study areas in California because we can't enter these grow sites until they have finished growing and they have vacated the areas because of threats. And we and it's also costing us about 10 to 30 percent budgetary increases because we have to have more biologists buddy up system. We can't just go out one biologist uh, at a time to go monitor a spotted owl. We have to have two to three and purchase other vehicles. So it's actually really, um, as well as a personal property, a personal uh, threat, it's also becoming a budgetary increase onto our field of collecting data for conservation. So when you're out there and then you do encounter a grow and then perhaps someone who's armed, what, what, what happens? Do you sort of say, hi, how are you? Please don't sh- uh, you what, just, what do you say? You just do a 180 and walk out. And then you and that Because... Uh, um, it's you keep your head down, you do a 180, and you walk out. I usually go out there with a 90-pound dog, okay. and I use my dog as a buffer between me and the grower. Uh, so that if something were to occur that is uh, uh, hopefully the dog takes um, the the brunt of the force. And so that's that's an unfortunate circumstance where I, in order to conserve wildlife and to uh, study the potential um, ecological systems out there that are occurring, that I have to bring a 90-pound dog in order to protect myself from a grower. Have you ever thought of bringing a weapon of some sort beyond um, the animal? Um, you know, I... Um, we have entertained the thought, but a lot of these uh, properties that we're at uh, do not allow us to carry firearms. So we have to either, um, you know, carry our Leatherman. We may have a can opener on it or a 90-pound dog. Getting into a knife fight in the woods. That sounds really spooky. Yeah, well, I'm just saying is like right. we can't carry anything. I mean, okay. it's pretty much right. a can opener. Of course, I understand. And, you, know, you know, John, just to add to this, what, what Murad is describing as far as what he's finding through his studies out there is not new. Uh, we saw 25 years ago the rodenticides, the fertilizers, the pesticides being dumped into our watersheds and onto our, our lands. Uh, at that time, I, I don't think the rodenticides were as as large a quantity, but everything else was there. So this is an issue that just is not new. This is something that is has a cumulative effect uh, from 20 years ago. And if you would like to speak to the sheriff or to Murad, who's a UC researcher, you can call right now, 786-5784, 786-5784. Now, the whole idea of the rodenticide, uh, I'm aware that it's uh, a major problem, and 
the uh, st- the study that you recently put together gained a great deal of attention, and people are even calling this a game changer. The, this report, and but why is that? Why is this so substantially important? I mean, of course, the, the little creatures are dying, and that of course has uh, various impacts. But why why is this new study so uh, again earth shattering to to those that well are involved um, with this? Well. Why is it a game changer? Specifically because a lot of the literature out there uh, deals uh, and pertains to uh, species that are cosmopolitan. So let's say coyotes, barn owls that are living in, let's say, uh, downtown L.A. or Fresno in the San Joaquin Valley. So there's this agricultural um, aspect. We have uh, fishers that are not associated with any of those habitats and are associated with our national park, our pristine wilderness settings that are being exposed to a second-generation rodenticide. Um, so this is the, the game changer is that now we have um, a toxin that bioaccumulates. So it's not just uh, fishers are getting it from their prey species, um, and so therefore the prey items are getting it. Uh, the fishers consume it. The fisher or something else consumes that fisher is also going to be exposed, and therefore it can go similar to other toxins. It just bioaccumulates throughout the food web to the chain of, um, let's say, carrion eater. So therefore a bear or a vulture can get it. And if that vulture dies, and then whoever consumes that also can be exposed to that toxic. So we have this now occurring in our wilderness and national park settings. And just to add to what Sheriff Downey mentioned, it's not just second-generation genera- rodenticides. What we have here, just here locally as well as throughout the state of California, we have banned chemicals such as carbamate, so carbofuran, furidan. These are banned chemicals that we are documenting out in our forest, as well as DDT. DDT has been banned in North America, but it's here locally. It's also uh, throughout the Sierra Nevada mountains, as well as these carb- carbamates are out there. And so we have banned chemicals that have been banned by in North America as well as the European Union right here in our backyard. So in the cumulative effect of all of these toxicants out there um, is something that we hope to bring to further awareness uh, and, and attention so that we can uh, possibly change the situation out there. So what happens to someone who enjoys smoking marijuana and they smoke marijuana that's laced with this rodenticide? Um, is, is that a problem? I, I think there's very minimal studies to see if, uh, you know, what are the... A lot of these chemicals are syst- uh, systemic. So, therefore, you put it on the ground, the plant's going to take it up into the phloem and sequester it in flowering uh, body or flowering parts. And that is specifically the reason why various carbamates have been banned uh, in North America because of that potential uh, uh, toxicology effects that may cause toxicosis in an individual. Uh, but I believe that there really hasn't been that many studies of, or if there is any studies to see what the human ramifications of smoking or ingesting or what I understand now, possibly juicing, um, uh, laced... Juicing? Uh, yeah, I've, I've, I've heard of this. Juicing marijuana? So you well, have a cocktail or something? I guess it's like wheatgrass. They <laughs> oh, okay. juice it, no similar idea. to that. All right. Uh, but, but that's something that no one has ever looked at uh, if, if the spillover and, facts are. And to add to that, you mentioned game changer. I've, I've used words similar to that since, I, uh, since I've uh, become aware of the study. I, I think it's changed the whole discussion immensely in, in Humboldt County and throughout California. Immensely? I, I think it has. Okay. I, I, in, in my mind, anyway, and, I, and people I've talked to, I'm, uh, as I've started to talk about this more and more, I, I'm not focused so much on the plant, even though that is a catalyst for what's going on. I'm focused on, on what it's doing to the environment, and it is, it, is, it is destroying our environment at alarming rates from what I've seen. And, I, and many of the people that uh, uh, 10, 15 years ago would have said, you know, 
you know, uh, we don't agree with what you're doing. You know, it's just a plant. A lot of people now are more supportive than they ever were before, saying we, we understand what you're talking about. We've got it. Uh, we believe that these large commercial industrial sites that are that are especially those that are out in, in our densest wilderlands uh, are, are are causing problems for our watershed that we may not recover from for years. And I, I've read some of the symptoms that you're talking about uh, when it comes to grading and then clear-cutting sections of uh, a forest and just, of course, uh, the pollution in that, that we've already uh, touched upon. But how often does that happen when someone clear-cuts a section of forest land? How is that even possible that someone who's operating legally goes in there and blows out a section land and then assumes that, hey, no one will notice. I mean, I find that well, shocking. Know, behind locked gates, uh, dense forests, you know, only way you see a lot of these is from the air. And, you know, you bring, and all that sediment washes down into our watershed. The other thing, too, is we talked about the uh, the fertilizers and that type of thing being introduced into the into our environment. But look at the Eel River. Look at the South Fork of the Eel. Look at some of these rivers where the algae bloom has, has erupted to where we've never seen it like this in the past. There's fertilizers going to that water that are causing this algae bloom to come up, and it's and it's harmful to fish. It's harmful to um, uh, animals that, that go into the water. We've we've had uh, many documented instances where dogs have gone swimming in in many of our rivers and ingested the water or ingested the algae bloom, and they can't recover from it. So, and it can be harmful to humans too, especially when you get into August, September, October, when the water flows go down and the river warms up a little bit more. There, there's a term that I've. I've uh read you, uh, you've been using recently, a mom-and-pop-sized operation versus... Uh, right. Do you use the term pop often? Do you call people pop? But, but, it's, a, but it's, it's a mom-and-pop operation versus the large-scale grow. Right. So what is a large-scale grow versus these smaller outfits? Well, you know, a large-scale grower, uh, we're, we're in one right now uh, where uh, deputies had to spend the night out there because it's covering such a vast area. We're probably looking at uh, three or 400 plants or more, but they're Christmas tree-sized plants. It's a large-scale grow. I mean, anything that's derived for a large amount of profit, to me, is a large-scale grow. Now, when I use the word mom and pop, you know, what I'm talking about is the person that's growing a few plants to, um, um, to, to smoke, or whatever on their land, and they're doing it, you know, uh, without any fear of of, of, of being uh, uh, busted, to so to so to speak. And uh, but when I use that term, what I was trying to do is was draw a parallel between what is the most important thing we're focusing on. We're focusing on these large scale grows, and I, I made it very clear that that doesn't mean that there's not going to be a smaller grow get get uh, eradicated or or a case start against it here and there along the way because that's just the nature of the beast as we go into this uh, eradication season. But well, the thing I'm trying to get across to people is that our focus is on the large grows, and our focus is to to deal with these uh, these cartels that are coming in and and, uh, and using our resources, our natural resources, to grow a highly profitable um, commodity and then take it out of here. That's always been sort of a murky part of this for me when I've heard about the cartels that are on the forest land. And uh, how widespread is that, that you have the, the Mexican mafia sort of roaming the, the forest? Well, not only Mexican mafia, you have other cartels and, and, and organized crime, not just the Mexican mafia. And it's all over, all over California, you'll find it. Um, uh, there's other ethnic populations are dealing with up in Del Norte County that that aren't as prevalent here. Uh, so 
it just depends on it's kind of territorial i guess but someone made a, a statement to me not too long ago that made a lot of sense they said wherever there's high profit you can you can be sure the mafia or organized crime is behind it or and has their hands in it some way and i think that's that's true look at the cash uh, seizures we've made in just the last uh, this last year we're probably well over a million dollars in cash seizures we've made and we continue to do that because it's a highly profitable um uh, or um, organization or or commodity and uh the profit is is to the point where people are willing to take that chance if you have a question for the sheriff humboldt county sheriff mike downey or uc davis researcher morad gabriel you can call 786-574-786-5784 786-574-786-5784. and on the phone now is john in eureka hello john hey so what, what is your question okay so I, I noticed that uh, the rivers are definitely getting worse, and also I've noticed that the uh, plant numbers that you guys have been taking out of the national forests has definitely decreased over the last few years. Uh, last year, you know, there was many hundred thousand plant busts, things of this nature, and the years before that. So the only thing I've really noticed on the rise around here is the is the uh, logging. It seems to me that all, if you look around at all the mills throughout the county, they're all loaded to the top with logs, cut logs, and there's uh, all over the roads, there's logs everywhere. So I'm wondering how much of the pollution in the river is due to the increased uh, logging that's happening right now. Well, yeah, good good question. And and uh, I need to quantify or clarify something. You're talking about a legal operation logging that has all these mandates and regulations that they have to go through to conduct that operation and an illegal operation that has no mandates, no regulations and and, uh, if you were to take a flight over Humboldt County and see the the number of them out there you would be amazed. So I I think it's hard to to draw a parallel between the two. You have a regulated operation and an unregulated one. Can I add to that, John? Um, yeah. One of the things that I also could state about this is that uh, parallel to what Sheriff Downey has mentioned is this is a tragedy of the commons. So basically you have this free resource, this public resource or public lands or the tribal lands, and uh, you have no regulations. And if if maybe you might see an ex- um, what you see specifically in logging operations, you have to take in consideration that um, they have various regulations and mandates, uh, CEQA or NEPA documentations. However, um, I could just clearly state that any of the illegal marijuana cultivations that I have seen would not pass any CEQA or NEPA. Um, the projects would fail. I mean, you cannot cut right up to a riparian corridor, um, put restricted-use chemicals into the water, throw uh, toxicants down that are banned in North America. So therefore, you have to take in consideration also a half an acre of a grow site that has over 4,000 pounds of nitrogen um, that is placed out there. And these are just some of the various aspects that we're documenting. So you have to weigh between the two and see if you have an oversight and a regulation that could uh, potentially enforce versus another um, activity that is illicit and there's no enforcement and regulation so it's basically uh, done underground. Thank you for the call, John. I appreciate it. 
Yeah, thanks for the answers. Okay, that is uh, John over in Eureka. If you have a question, please call 786-5784. And as, as we talk about regulation and the federal government versus the local authorities, I've, I've seen in the past, uh, in particular, you were speaking up in Crescent City. This is the Sheriff's Stand Tall for the Constitution operation. There's a YouTube video of this online. And you seem to take the position that you don't necessarily enjoy the idea of federal regulation to an extent that you think it's harming our economy to a certain extent uh, to, an, uh, to a degree. Is, is that... Is that valid? Or well, I mean, how, how do you reconcile that with the idea of involving right. the federal government in this, right. this current? I think I think effort. you have to have to look at it in, in the totality of what what that is what that means. There are definitely areas in our life where the federal government does have a standing. You know, you go back to the Tenth Amendment talks about you know those those uh, um, areas that are truly state. Uh, state issues and those that are, are federal issues. Uh, the marijuana issue, I believe, is a federal issue because it is. There, there are federal mandates on the books that say marijuana, any cultivation of marijuana, doesn't matter whether it's uh, medical or not, is illegal. So my point is, I have to I have to comply with federal law as, as a constitutional officer. So that's why I've gone to the, to the feds and said, okay, th- this is a federal issue. I recognize that. Now, I, I, I let me draw a line there. I think that the medical marijuana part of it may not be a federal issue. The voters of the state of California voted uh, in 1997, 1996 to um, legalize medical marijuana. Now, has that been abused? Yes, it has. But But I do believe that like the model done in Mendocino County by Sheriff Allman and the Board of Supervisors down there to regulate that portion of it was the right way to go. But now that has been uh, circumvented by the federal government, saying, so, you know, you cannot regulate, you cannot derive a profit, even though it's not a profit. It was the monies were used to sustain their operations um, and uh, off of an illegal commodity, and so that that program is now defunct. But I, I do believe that there are areas that the federal government does not have a standing in California. But I'm not going to paint all the federal government as as nasty, vile, and bad. Okay. Now, locally for yourself, uh, the idea that you would have to deal with uh, the 215 cards and, of course, medical marijuana, and the state has approved this uh, to a degree, and now there's this conflict that is brewing with the federal government, which is ramping up. Uh, that yes. is very clear. But how do you how do you approach that? And you essentially just told me, but how do you view 215 and medical marijuana? And so when you show up at a growth site and then they show the cards, of course, you have to check out to see what's happening. But how do you view those cards and just the idea that they're providing medicine? Well, I, you know, I think there's enough um, clinical data out there to show that there is some benefit from the medicinal use of marijuana. I'm not going to debate that. I'm, I'm not a medical person. I'm not going to sit here and try to take that take that on. But uh, with that, again, the voters spoke pretty loud and, and, and uh, approved medical marijuana. But what we have to do is decide those that are abusing it and those that aren't. And there is there is a large number that are abusing it. We just had a case not too long ago where a guy was growing under what he said was a medicinal use, but he had paying O sheets, large amounts of cash, admitted to selling and packaging marijuana. That's clearly outside the confines of 215, Compassionate Use Act. So uh, again, those that are legitimately using it, and the Fed, and the feds have pretty much said this too: a legitimate patient using medical marijuana, they're not going to waste their time trying to go after it because it's again a small, a small um, portion of the larger picture. 
And if you have a question for the sheriff, call me at 76-5784. And we'll take a quick break and come back with more with the sheriff, Mike Downey, and also Maura Gabriel. He is a UC researcher. And through the Law School's Now Post, you can find links to his paper and other things that have been written about this. But more to come after a quick break on Netflix Case Log. Did you know that the same bulbs that are used to light our streets are also probably used in your indoor garden? What if you could use a lamp that was engineered specifically to maximize your plant's usable spectrum? Look no further than the Dutch-engineered Pro-Line by Gavita, now available at a fertile world. Gavita has revolutionized the indoor horticulture world by introducing a lamp that maximizes PAR light, photosynthetic active radiation, not lumens. Lumens only speak to how bright the light is to the human eye. A fertile world was the first to bring this new technology to Humboldt, and we can beat anyone's price. The new Gavita Pro 1000 watt full fixture features a plant-specific master green power bulb manufactured by Philips, a state-of-the-art digital ballast capable of being adjusted from 600 watts to 1150 watts, and a replaceable reflector. This synergistic package by Gavita that includes the ballast bulb and reflector will increase your yields up to 30%. Let your plants see the difference by coming into a fertile world on the corner of 5th and A in Eureka, on West End Road in Arcata, and Fortuna on 7th and L. A fertile world committed to Humboldt County farming. Hey, she's open. Who's open? Angelina. What do you mean? The Angelina Inn Fernbridge. She's completely rebuilt. Yeah? When can I go eat? Right now. Call for a reservation, 725-5200. So what is she serving? Just like the original Angelina. Great Italian dishes, lots of barbecued steaks, chicken and ribs, fresh seafood and salads. What about the beer, man? Oh, the Angelina has 14 beers on tap and 50 more in bottles. They got lots of wine and the best mixed drinks around. So when does she? open. The Angelina Inn's open right now, seven days a week for lunch and dinner. Call 725-5200 to make your reservation because they are busy. You know my girl loves to dance. Listen, they've got a killer new stage, a lot of live music lined up, bluegrass, country, classic rock, swing. Watch for the ads. I'm calling 725-5200 right now for reservations. You in? I'm in. Open now to serve you. The Angelina Inn Fernbridge, a humble tradition since 1933. I'm in. Sequoia Park, Moonstone Beach, Freshwater Park. What do all these places have in common? They're all great places to have your next picnic. And by coincidence, they're all in close proximity to a Ramones bakery and cafe. So when the day's shaping up to be a little nicer than the weatherman said, and you're feeling spontaneous in a picnic-y kind of way, stay in the moment. Choose your destination and make the stop into your nearest Ramones to fill up your picnic basket. Ramones Bakery has everything you need for your picnic. The deli case carries quite a variety. All kinds of healthy salads ready to go along with the chicken salad wraps and sandwiches too. Roast beef, turkey, egg and tuna salad sandwiches. They even have pizza. For the kids, you can even order peanut butter and fresh fruit sandwiches. And Ramones even has you covered with a variety of drinks and juices too. Ramones Bakery and Cafe. Your personal pay and picnic shop. Hey, this is Sarah Bareilles, and I invite everyone to join me in my support of the Casa Kid Walk. Casa volunteers like my dad make a difference in the lives of Humboldt County's abused children. In our busy lives, not everyone has the time to be a Casa volunteer, but you can help support those who do. You and your friends, family, and coworkers can form a Kid Walk team or donate to an existing team by visiting HumboldtCasa.org or by calling 443-3197. Thanks so much. It is nice. I'm John Matthews, and we are here today talking with the sheriff, Mike Downey, and also Morad Gabriel. He is a UC researcher who recently looked at the impact of large-scale marijuana grows on the environment. And are you, at this point, uh, Sheriff Downey, 
not, I'd say, giving the small growers a pass, but I'm just trying to understand how this this works. So if someone has a smaller scale operation, let's say in their garage or outbuilding or something like that, and you would classify this, as we said earlier, as a mom and pop operation, perhaps, obviously all things are, are different, but how are you treating those people? Are they off the radar or... Well, you know, a lot of those things that you just mentioned, those types of growers are, are complaint-driven, especially those that are growing in their garage or growing in their house. Um, and when we get a complaint, when someone calls the tip line and says, hey, there's a, a marijuana grow going on at such and such an address, and the, the windows are blacked out, and I hear the generators running, or I hear the, the, the meter, you know, the meter runs all the time. No one lives there, but they go in and out. You know, those types of things, we don't know how big of an operation we have there. So surely we're going to investigate that. The, the main thing I'm trying to, to, to emphasize when I make that statement is that the large scale is to a point that I'm, that is my focus. And I've I let my people in the field know that. This is our focus. This is what we're looking at um, intently. Now, that doesn't mean the other stuff doesn't come along. You know, again, remember, I, I have two different units under my command. I have our drug enforcement unit, which mainly takes care of our, the marijuana for the sheriff's office, and now the drug task force, which is a countywide task force, comes under under my purview, too. I have a, I have a lieutenant in charge of that. So they work on a lot of the more urban Type stuff where my uh, my marijuana operation operational group in the sheriff's office takes care of a lot of the large scale outdoor things. So, you know, to, to say that we're that they get a pass, it's not that they get a pass. It's that our focus is on the larger grows. So I, I don't want people to think that they're they're, 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 they're in the clear. Yeah, just keep doing clear. what you're doing. Right. And now to Phil in Eureka. Hello, Phil. So you have a question for the sheriff, or perhaps for Moret? Yeah, for the sheriff. Okay, he can hear you. Okay, I, uh, I had a question if there's a new policy change about taking children away from um, growers, legal or not. Um, it seems like there's been a few of those cases where there's been um, children have been removed from their families right. for cultivation. Um, right. Isn't that kind of like taking children away from... Um, bootleggers in the 20s just for speeding and not actually for growing if you're saying it's for electrical hazards or something it's that's a product of the fact that it's illegal not really that they're in any real danger that's a great question um, and I've had that question po- poised to me the last week or so a couple of times we through the drug task force and through some of the grants that we we enjoy or that we use I should say um, there we had to um, uh, produce or come up with a drug endangered children protocol which is used nationwide and statewide everyone has to have it's become a very focal point of investigations uh, regarding children that are endangered due to um, illegal manufacturing or production of, of, uh, of marijuana or any other drug. And in the two cases you're talking about, or at least one of them, uh, I, I'm not sure if there was a second one or not, um, it's not that it's a new protocol. In fact, we had one just uh, the other day where we did not take the children out of the home. The problem is is the is the one that's probably the the, the most recent is uh, there was illegal wiring in the home, and wiring to the point that it was exposed and was and was a hazard to the children who were inside the house. They could have touched that wiring, grabbed that wiring, and been electrocuted. The other thing I think people are losing too, uh, not understanding, is in an indoor setting where you're growing marijuana inside a structure. Uh, the, the mold spores and the spores that that, that are that are that be, that are prevalent in the air from that mold are also very um, uh, injurious to uh, 
people that are inside the home. So those are the things we have to look at. Now, do we just arbitrarily do that every time? No. We usually can consult with the DA's office, see if it meets their threshold. Uh, we'll call um, uh, Child Welfare Services, see if they agree. If they don't, then we'll leave the children in the home. So it's not a policy that every time we're going to remove a child, but if we if the, if it fits within the guidelines of this of this deck protocol that I referred to, then we have to we have to check that out as well and make sure that we we don't leave a child in the home that that is uh, possibly endangered. Thank you, Phil. Thank you. That is Phil over in Eureka. If you'd like to speak to the sheriff, seven eight six five seven eight four. And I'm just, again, trying to wrap my mind around the, the scale of this environmental damage that is happening, because people talk in grave terms that this is a, a serious predicament, which I agree with. But can you give me some idea of really what that looks like? And, Murad, since you're out there studying this uh, in a serious way, I mean, how bad is bad on a scale of 1 to 10? Um, well, we still have an assessment. Um, I can't come up with a specific number. But what I can give you as an example is, um, for example, where um, Sheriff Downey, as well as uh, uh, his crew in Hoopa Tribe, Forestry's law enforcement at the Hoopa Mill Creek site. So that was a 26,000 plant uh, eradication. We were able to document, and we still haven't even assessed probably less than 50% of that growth site we've been able to document. We documented 10 pounds of rat poison. So that's enough to kill about 12,000 deer mice, uh, about 1,800 wood rats or 1,800 gray squirrels, 17 to 47 Humboldt Martins, 5 to 28 fishers, or up to 21 spotted owls. We found about 3,000 pounds of fertilizer, uh, two poached deer, one ringtail that was uh, poached. It's a state-protected species. Uh, over 8 pounds of restricted-use uh, insecticides. And this is only 40% of the growth site that we've been able to document. And we haven't even gone over half of that. And this is what we've documented. And, and we've done over 10 growth sites. And what I'm finding at this 26,000 plant growth site is exactly what we're finding in the other um, 10 growth sites we've been at. Rat poison that we know of um, has, there's 140 reclamation sites that have been done in the state of California this year. All 140 have had pretty much the same, but all 140 have 100%. Uh, second-generation rodenticides, and that's in our national parks, in Yosemite National Park, um, everywhere um, in our public lands. And one thing we I really like to emphasize and point out is that we just recently had four poison cases in Hoopa. Two of them have been confirmed. We have another rodenticide poisoning uh, that they most likely consumed it from poison prey. And now we just have our first poisoning of a fisher that directly consumed the rat poison. These are species that the Hoopa tribe holds culturally and spiritually significant. And these DTOs are in here that are um, cutting their forest that they're very dependent on, their natural resources they're dependent on, and poaching the wildlife that are culturally significant and, and spiritually significant. They use them for spiritual dances. And so one thing I like um, everybody, everybody to try to fathom is, um, is you know, an outside group coming into our tribal lands that are doing this. This is uh, something I think that should um, be concerning to our citizens. Yeah, the exposure rate is, is something I think Marat already hit on a couple of times is just to drive that home. You have an animal that has uh, been exposed, like a first-time exposure, maybe uh, ingesting the, the poison out of the, out of the, the, the source or maybe uh, from a rat trap that's out in the field, and then that animal dies. Another animal from 
who knows where comes now in just that one. Now you have another exposure. That exposure rate fans out from that growth site in, in, in a large a large array. I mean, it can go out miles and miles from that one incident, and you have more and more species that are now uh, exposed to this this same rodenticide. And, and adding to that, too, is also not just wildlife. We also have to take in consideration that a lot of these toxicants can and have been shown to be, in other cases, sequestered in game species. So now we have to think of um, deer, bear, wild boars here that are in Humboldt County that people consume on a daily basis. The possibility of them, of humans now becoming exposed by consuming tainted game meat. That's also a plausible scenario that we're starting to investigate well, now. One, one of the uh, um, examples Murad used early on was, uh, I think it was two fishing game officers had walked into a, a grow site and they found a, a, a mother bear and a two cubs mm-hmm. that were obviously suffering from, from uh, exposure to some uh, insecticide or adenicide or something along the way. They were uh, they were writhing on the ground. I and think convulsing. Convulsing. And, yeah. Oh, it's terrible. How common is it to use a rodenticide in marijuana production? I'm not involved with growing marijuana, right. so these things are kind of a mystery to me. But is that something that you'd find in someone's garage if they have a couple of lights going? Of rodenticide? Sure, you, really? you could. You could. And would, would these, these rats enjoy eating pot, or what, what happens? Well, yeah. I mean, anything, yeah, any anything like that that is consumable, they're gonna they're gonna consume. Uh, and again, in the in the forest, in the outdoor scene, most definitely, it's it's a food source brought into their environment, and mm-hmm. they're gonna go after that food source. Okay. And, and also the irrigation lines too. So remember, the irrigation lines run for hundreds of yards to up to half a mile to up to a mile in length and they use this rodenticide to line their irrigation lines and i've personally seen it lined for hundreds of yards with just rodenticide packages or just loose rodenticide to protect it from rodents from chewing the irrigation line would not to ask you to serve as a consultant for illegal marijuana grows but what would you recommend they do if uh well first of all stop uh behaving badly well but i mean is there an alternative or what would you want to say to someone who's involved with this who could be listening on public lands and tribal lands it i could only state that it it would be it's an illegal action it doesn't matter what plant it is it could be strawberries or corn it's illegal to go into our national forests our national parks and our tribal lands to just go ahead and disc a field and put corn or strawberries that's illegal so it doesn't matter what the plan is so i can't come up with any recommendation of what may be a good um alternative alternative okay and again that was not a terribly serious question, but there has to be some way around this piece that this uh, well, can't continue, it seems. That this, it appears, based on what I'm hearing today and then I have over the last uh, several months, that this is a very serious situation. I, I, I believe so. I, 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 that's why I, as I started out, and as I've talked uh, since then, I think this is the catalyst to changing um, somewhat of the culture in Humboldt County and, and the acceptance of, of certain things that go on here. Um, again, uh, I think our biggest and most prevalent uh, problem now are are those large industrial commercial grows on on growers who are, are, are coming from outside Humboldt County um, into Humboldt County to 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 carry on this um, illegal enterprise. I think that's that's the first place we have to start, and I the, and I think if we can turn the tide on that, we're going to see some some success. And Allison over in West Haven, you have a question for the sheriff. Hi there. Yeah, how are you doing? I'm fine. Great. Uh, hello, Sheriff Downey and Murad. This is Allison Sterling Nichols. Hi. How are you guys doing? Good. Well, we're great. 
Good. Well, I've really enjoyed the show, and I just wanted to actually call and, and thank you, John and K-Slug, um, for it's pretty incredible to me knowing you know very well the political climate up here that we have a sheriff who uh, in enforcement of a massive industry in this county is focused on the biological impacts and um, I think we need to be really grateful for that we could have someone just uh, kind of running rampant in the hills and I know there's a lot of work to be done but it seems to me like he's really working on refining his information and I don't know I've just been listening to the show thinking this is uh, incredible that we have a biologist and a sheriff on the radio talking about the, the industry so I just wanted to thank you guys well, thank you, Allison. All right. Keep All right. up the good work. Okay. Take care, Allison. She's a fan. <laughs> I have worked with Allison before. Oh, you have? Yeah, okay. I know her, yeah. Okay. And what has the reaction been overall to this this uptick in activity that appears to be taking place? Uh, you mean from the general public? Sure. I mean, yeah. you receive letters or phone calls yeah. saying, please stay out of our yard or things of that nature. No, I, have not, I have not received that. Um, I, actually, I, I, I've... I've gotten uh, very positive feedback. Of course, not from everybody. It's not 100%. But I have received some pretty positive feedback from people uh, that in the past would not have been as that pos- you know, positive about it. I mean, right, I spent a large portion of my career in Southern Humboldt and, and uh, know a lot of people down there. And I still have a lot of friends down there and go down there for different events. And people will come up to me and say, we think you're doing the right thing. We think it's the, it's the best, a good way to go. Now to Sue in Fortuna, and if you'd like to speak to the sheriff, you can call us at 786-5784. Hi, Sue. Hi. Um, uh, John, before I was reading, or before I turned on your show, I was reading the letters, letters to the editor in the Times Standard, and there's a gal named Linda who said, um, if I could read it, I'd like to know how many taxpayer dollars were spent to send the Humboldt County Sheriff's Department, the DAT Task Force, the Fortuna Police Department, the Forest Service, the U.S. Marshal's Office, and the Drug Enforcement Agency to eradicate the 52 pot plants in someone's home. I am tired of my tax dollars being wasted to chase around mom and pop grows while the tweakers are overrunning McKinleyville and Eureka. Is it possible that none of these agencies have interest in the meth labs because there's no money to be made off of them? And I'd like if uh, Sheriff Downey would respond to this. I'll listen off the air. Okay. Thank, Thank you, Sue. Thank you. Uh, yeah, you know, I, I know the case you're, you're speaking of. And uh, no, uh, it doesn't mean that we're not focusing on methamphetamine and, and uh, heroin and other, other dangerous drugs. Our drug task force does deal with those cases on uh, a, a lot of frequency. Um, but the marijuana issue is, is huge in, marijuana, in, in Humboldt County. And the cases you're speaking of, uh, there were other agencies involved. We were actually assisting uh, the DEA uh, and the U.S. Marshal's Office on that case because it actually was derived from much, a much larger uh, investigation from outside the area that they're working on. So it, it, it wasn't necessarily one that we had initiated but that we assisted with. Um, so it, you know, th- this is how these things happen. They, they kind of spider web out, and um, you know, there's many people that are caught up in the, in the mix because of their um, association with a much larger operation. So my, my information that I, that I know of is that we were asked to assist with this um, uh, marijuana uh, enforcement, and that was our, our role in this case. What is your relationship with the DA's office when you arrest people? Do you think that the people who are perpetrating these crimes, that they are being prosecuted to the fullest extent of the law? 
Well, you know, I, I you know I can't speak for the DA's office, and, and but your and, opinion. And, well, my my opinion is, is that they work with us very well. Um, uh, we present the cases to to the DA's office once they're completed. They have to charge based on the merit of that case, and what they feel um, uh, can and cannot be prosecuted successfully. Um, so I, I think that. Uh, on the most part, uh, many of our cases are, are handled uh, adequately. Um, would there be some that I would I would argue that point with? Sure, it's going to be that way any, anywhere. But uh, we're we're in a we're in a position now where it is it's a large scale uh, part of the prosecutorial uh, part of what goes on in the county and, and with the DA's office. So it does at times um, I won't say clog up the system, but overburdens the system also. Ernie, good morning. You have a question. Yes, I do, please. Okay, let's hear it. All right, uh, how do you define these large commercial grows, you know, exactly? And I, I, I hear, uh, this is more of a comment, I guess, but, but uh, you know, ostracizing or, or, you know, putting down these so-called outsiders, you know, when, when my friend that lives there, you know, he comes and he rents houses or whatever, and he contributes to the economy, buys, you know, you got to buy everything that everybody else buys to live, so that's a lot of money coming in from whoever they may be. So, you know, to, to put people down wherever they may be from doesn't seem right to me, but that's it. Okay. Thank well, you, Ernie. I'm not necessarily putting people down, but what I'm what I'm trying to show here, especially based on, on what Murad um, has had to offer, is we have people coming into our county that don't live in our county that that are coming here to like the gold rush gold rush days to capitalize on on our natural resources and what we have here and then they leave sure they spend some money here to perpetuate their grow but let's let's not forget that this is an illegal activity even in the state of california california law prohibits the large-scale production uh and sales of marijuana you know the only thing in California law that is legal is to grow medicinal marijuana. And I'll, I'll guarantee you some of these medicinal marijuana growths that I've seen are, are, are uh, uh, fronts for a large-scale um, uh, operation that is commercial. Uh, but there are those, again, that are not. There are some photographs that he released recently, or at least the uh, drug task force did. I've seen them. And it's, it's, it's incredible how many large-scale growers that you can see just through a quick flight over the area. Right. And, again, I, I'm, I'm puzzled by people who think they can just set that up and then everything will be okay, that no one will see them. But, again, you, you have so many options to choose from when it comes to a raid. How do you decide which one to go after? By the way, just as a bit of a side note, what do you think when you see a, a shot from the air and then there's this red cross indicating this is a, a medical grow but I mean, what does that does that have any impact on your decision making process well it, it surely could i mean if, if someone wants to uh, advertise over medical grow then we may go down there and say well let's see let's see your documentation Proof. you know if you're medical grow then you should have your recommendation here or recommendations of those that you're growing for to 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 uh to back up your your statement um as far as how we um we we don't have much problem uh, prioritizing or finding um, work. Um, I've had people in the field since yesterday. They spent the night in the field working on a, on a location. It got too too dangerous to try to continue the uh, eradication efforts during the night, so they're finishing it up today. So uh, we're, there is no shortage for work for us, and most of the work 
a majority of the work that, that my drug enforcement unit does through the sheriff's office are these larger grows, these commercial, we can we consider commercial grows. You know, if you're finding uh, vast amounts of cash, um, pay-and-o sheets where they've, they've uh, sold uh, uh, large quantities of marijuana from past grows, um, and there's enough to, and you can substantiate that, that's a commercial grow in my, in my book. And more through your research, what do you think the future holds? Do you think that things will turn around or they'll get worse before they get better? Um, I think right now is probably one of the things I've been stating is that this is a human-caused um, situation. So us as humans can solve this. So it's not something that um, all is lost. But I think more perception, awareness of what's going on uh, can therefore guide um uh, the citizens to inform the policymakers on whether or not um, they're ex- they're, they are comfortable with what's going on in our public and tribal lands. So um, I think uh, the future holds a positive outcome, and 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 the reason why is the more documentation, the more awareness and um, education provided from this documentation. I think uh, people will become better informed in their decisions. And Sheriff Downey. I've read quotes about, again, the increased federal activity, and I think there was one quote in the Time Standard not that long ago, and he is, uh, of course, an agent. And, uh, okay, he's with the DEA, Randy Wagner, U.S. Uh, DEA special agent in Northern California. I can tell you we're going to be hot and heavy in Humboldt County from here on out. So is that ha- is everything's hot and heavy right now? Is it? Well, as far as DEA involvement, um, we've had you know more involvement in the past than we have now. Again, they are a partner. Um, they are they are helping us out in other ways than just manpower. And again, I have one of my deputies attached, actually attached to a DEA task force, which which assists us with intelligence and, and uh, information gathering and resources when we need it here in Humboldt County. Uh, but that that DEA group out of Santa Rosa that you're referring to services a number of counties in Northern California, so it becomes a collaborative effort more than anything else. Okay. And your relationship with those agencies, do you ever have to actually sort of clarify your position so they understand what is happening or who's in charge or yeah. how does that work? Well, we clarified that in the very beginning um, and when I met with the uh, um, U.S. Attorney, and they're very respective of, of my wishes here in Humboldt County. And, again, I'm, I'm responsible for uh, uh, enforcing state law in, in Humboldt County, and, uh, and they've been very respective of that. What do you think will happen with uh, the, the 215 law in California if you were to appear into the future? As far as whether it be held up or, sure. or something voted down, I, I think that uh, um, you've got what uh, sixteen other states that have similar laws, and there's another two that are that have it on their um, their ballots to to vote either up or down. Uh, I think two fifteen is probably here to stay in California. Um, I think, but we're still in the process after all these years of, of of fitting it into a box as to how it's supposed to work and what's a collaborative, what's a collective. Does it fit state law? Does it not fit state law? So there's a lot of there's still a lot of uncertainty. I think the the one thing people can walk away from here though is if they're growing some marijuana for their own purpose for for medicinal purposes, they're probably fine. But if we have a large-scale operation that, uh, under the guise of 215 saying they're growing for numerous people, they're not going to be fine. And we had a case like that just two years ago. Okay. Thank you so much for coming down. Thank you. Thank I really you. appreciate it. That.
is Sheriff Mike Downey and UC Davis researcher Morad Gabriel. And you can find out more through the lostcoastoutpost.com. There are some helpful links to various papers and articles. Coming up after a short break, Cake on Case Log 